Great. Good afternoon, everybody. And actually, it is good afternoon, but if you're outside of the United States, good evening, uh, because I know that I have some people that have come in and they're visiting while well, they're visiting here and, and partaking in this particular webinar uh, from Germany. And I believe I got somebody else from Italy maybe coming in. In any case, here we are. My name is Michael Filigera. Uh, I have uh, two websites, plus many other things, but two websites, uh, tradershelpingtraders.com and logicalsignals.com. And we'll talk more about those a little bit later. But today, what my presentation is entitled is Using Elliott Wave and Fibonacci as Your Guide. And I'm going to start by... I. I always kind of try to begin to give a, a, some basics on Elliott Wave. Elliott Wave is not the easiest thing to actually try to understand, but it's not incredibly difficult. So let's give it a go, just get a little backup history here with what Elliott Wave is. Um, Elliott Wave, of course, was started and put together by Ralph Nelson Elliott, R.N. Elliott. And he did it back in the 30s of the past century when he became very ill. And he had to come out to California, which is much drier, I guess, than where he was, uh, to aid his recovery process. And while he was here, he started to note um, the equity markets. But basically, he was using the Dow Jones. That was the index that was available. That was the index that was always there. And so he could get <coughs> excuse me, his hourly count. So in other words, once an hour, he wrote down where the index was. And then at the end of the day, he plotted it and then connected those dots, thus the beginning of the Elliott Wave principle. And after he had built up his charts enough, he began to realize that there were patterns that seemed to repeat themselves over and over. So hence, he started to make notations and what he felt were forming and what he ended up calling these. <coughs> Excuse me. <laughs> there are two basic larger patterns that will be in operation at any given time within any market. The first is an impulse wave. Impulse waves are counted with numbers. And one, two, three, four, five. They're very easy to recognize because they're one, two, three, four, five. They show up, they're clean, they each have. Um, characteristics in between, and you can work out fibs. Everything works out very cleanly. The second are corrective waves. Now, corrective waves come in two basic structures, one being flat, where we get, uh, let's see if I can find one that's going to work out real quickly. Uh, let me go up. Let me go up one to see if I have any. Mm, unfortunately, I don't, but what they are is a, B, C, and where the waves are basically the same length throughout the structure. So we call that a flat, an ABC flat. The second would be a zigzag. And that is evidence here on our weekly chart in the S&P future. We have an A, a B, and a C. And that's normally how they're going to be labeled. And they're labeled that way because they're normally a five, three, five. So in other words, wave A is five waves, wave B is three, Wave C is five waves, a five, three, five. Also very clean, very simplistic, come in one form. Now, back over to that flat formation or the structure, that actually comes in about 13 different variations. And that's where we start to get the difficulty within part of the 
sorry, that we get into trouble because it becomes more difficult to actually pinpoint what the market is doing. So for example, let me go back down to at least my four-hour chart, which we're going to see plenty of what's going on. This is corrective. It's an ABC. It had many variations in between. This was a, a, a one, two, three, four, five. This was a three. And then this sort of ended up still a five, but very awkward, containing some very strange patterns. That's what can happen within a corrective process. They're normally first considered counter trend moves because as established off of the all-time highs, we were in a corrective process. So the trend then becomes down. So when we're counting impulse waves, which are numbered, they're going to be down because impulse waves will normally go within the direction of the trend. Then counter trend waves will be threes or combination thereof. So we kind of get that, became very confusing. But initially I had put the intermediate wave two up here as a complete, and that we were beginning the next down phase of a larger declining C wave. And as anybody who's been following the S&P or actually trying to trade the equity markets knows, the market just got crazy and went this way and went that way. And it was very difficult to determine what they were looking for the next day, what was going to happen in the next week, how were things going to react? And, and others may have also noticed that it always now, for the last longer period of time, I'm going to say since we've reached that all-time high, it seems that the market is continually waiting for something. It could be we've got an expiration, and I'll tell you what, we have expirations that occur every single day in the S&P and in several other of the indices. We have in all of the component stocks within our indices, we have expirations every Friday. So it's once a week. Then we have the monthly, <clears throat> which occurs within that weekly cycle, but it's a little bit bigger. We have quarterly, which includes more of our markets. So what I mean by that, we got the Forex, we've got commodities, we've got precious metals, we've got treasuries. And if we get a quarterly, they all kind of line up and we get sometimes what we might call a quadruple, a quintuple, whatever type of expiration that would be. And, and really what's that determining is that just the size of all the different markets that are going to participate in options expiring and money changing hands on one particular day. So back to the counts, when we, what we've got going on. So what I really look at is what the market is trying to tell me and how I can fit that into what my larger count is really fitting into. Recently, that's become very, very challenging. And as you, as people that follow me through my work, I post each day, I post an update on the NASDAQ and the S&P futures markets each day, Monday through Thursday. And then I pick up again on Sunday once the Globex session starts. And I can hear the frustration from my from subscribers and and I share in that frustration because Elliot did set up a set of rules and even when I'm teaching Elliot Wave I'll say this is a no break rule so don't break this rule because if you do you're going to get yourself in trouble and I'm finding with how things are traded today um that can become more difficult and I'll talk about that as well within these next couple of hours. First of all, I want to thank you all for coming and sharing your time with me and allowing me to share mine with you. Now, 
to begin, let's go back one step to realize when we're talking or what Elliot taught me and what we then turn around and teach everybody else is you attempt to start on your largest amount of data or largest chart available. Now, the index futures, the S&P futures, I really go back only to 1983. So yes, that's a nice little amount of data, but let me go over to the SPX and show you that actually in the SPX, I go back to 1928. That's 1928. So I have much more data in the SPX cash, in the cash market. And from that, I can build a large picture because within our equity market, Elliott Wave continues to build all the way up to what is Elliott would call grand super cycle. So I don't necessarily count up off of that grand super cycle. And I'll tell you why. If this is the super cycle in this light blue, the one that we just finished up here at our all-time highs started in 1932. Well, if I'm looking at when the next grand super cycle is going to finish, I'll be doing it from heaven. So I don't try to include that large of a picture. I think that even the grand, uh, the the super cycle level is really, really long term. And how that's all going to fit in still has to be resolved in my mind and a lot of other people's minds. But just safe to say, this is where I began to build my count. Now, in the beginning, when I pulled up this chart and had all this data, I actually started by using R.N. Elliott's count to begin to get my biggest picture going that I can follow through and determine what's going on. Now, many people have <clears throat> labeled these as grand super cycles. And I said, I don't, that doesn't fit for me. So I dropped it to the super cycle, but these would be super cycles as defined by R.N. Elliott himself. So here was the top, October of 1929. Here was the bottom, which included the 29 crash and then some, because it wasn't that initial crash that paralyzed the United States and the world and threw everything into this Great Depression. It was a secondary. So in other words, remember, a corrective phase is going to come in three waves labeled ABC. The A wave was the initial crash in 29. Then we had a rally in a B wave, but it was that crushing C wave that produced the deflation, that produced the depression, that produced just a very, very tough economic times for the globe, for the world. And that is what completed then super cycle wave two. Now, understanding that Elliot also included this nice, clever instructions for us, that Elliot wave is actually a series of building blocks. So in essence, what we're doing is we're going to start at the largest picture we can get and work our way down. But that's going to come in very, very handy and very successful analysts using Elliott Wave will find that when you start top down versus bottom up, you're going to be able to get all of your degrees done correctly. Now, and what I mean by that is that in an impulse move consisting of five waves. So how he began to talk about the Elliott Wave principle was that how the market then starts to play out. So when we get a, a, a movement, one, two, three, four, five, in either direction, so we're just going to call it up in this one, that that will be considered 
five up, and then we should begin to see an ABC or a three-wave decline or counter-trend rally or whatever we kind of call it, correction, and that would be labeled ABC. And then once those were complete, that then finishes the waves one and two of one degree up. Then we begin the process over. So if we're going to start with what we're finishing here, we're going to start from a very lower level. So we're, but we're still going to build up. So from here, we're actually doing it the other way around because we already have the data. And so I can start from the super cycle. And now if I'm inside of super cycle wave three, what is that going to consist of? That's going to consist of five waves of cycle degree. So you can see under my color codes here, what each one and what degree they are. Now, what's going to be in that cycle wave one? Five waves of primary degree. What's going to be in this cycle wave two? Three waves of primary degree, ABC. It gets a little crunchy if I start, I try to stick it in there because we have so much data compressed into such a uh, actually small chart. So again, building blocks. Now, as we began this cycle wave three, what does that going to consist of? Five waves of primary degree. And here they are labeled. But if we start to bring it down, particularly off of the 2009 low, you're going to see that I was able to build this concept. So I'm now going to shift and realizing that we had cycle wave one, two, three, and four. And I'm going to just go right from there so that we can see this. So here we have the high, and that would have been in March of 2000. So now I'm bringing it all up into our days. I don't know how long each one of you have been trading, but I was in the market in the year 2000. And so I do remember labeling this. I do remember looking for, at least within the SPX, a cycle, but a primary ABC, a primary degree corrective phase to be put in as cycle wave four. Now, this one threw everyone a curveball more pronounced in the Dow than in the S&P. And what happened in the time was that the Dow all by itself, in fact, I can go over and show you that. So hold on, let me just go over to our Dow chart and go over here. Here we have that same thing, all right? Here 2000, cycle wave three, we're going to get an A, B, C for cycle wave four. Well, here's the A wave. Now, then we're starting a B wave and there are Fibonacci relationships, and I'll talk about those in a moment too. There are the Fibonacci relationships between the different waves also give us the levels that we would be looking for. For example, when you get a wave A decline and you're looking for a B wave rally, the most common Fibonacci number for that B wave to retrace against the A wave would be about be 50% to 62%. That's fairly normal, but we have other guidelines surrounding it that with this ends up being, and as it was, a series of ABCs down to that low that gives this B wave the potential that it could also just continue and turn into what Elliot called an irregular B wave, in which case we would not expect on a normal basis a C wave to put in a new high, being that it's corrective. And when it did, it took it up into an irregular B wave. And I'm bringing this up now because we have potential, not written in stone, but potential of repeating this again, most likely in the Dow, 
as we head up to a top now in what we're doing in our market. So if we kit down here, here's what happened. We went up. They just thought everything was glorious. The Dow makes a new all-time high at the time at 14,200, I'm going to call it. And being that we're all old enough and we all likely were there at the time, see what happened after. I remember I was trading all this of the thought process of what was going through people's minds that the economy's roaring, the housing market's roaring, everybody's buying houses, the prices are going up the roof, they're all being able to get the loans, everybody's qualifying. And if you were there, you remember, and hopefully some of you did not get caught in that debacle, but uh, many, many, many people did. And it was qualifying for loans that they actually wouldn't qualify, but somehow they managed to. And this created a very, very serious situation in our country and thus participating in the great financial collapse of 2008-2009. It was extremely destructive, but guess what? It was a C-wave. So if you're ever following Elliot and you happen to be listening to things that I'm putting on, you will hear me talk about how wave B is a sucker play. It's deceiving. It's deceptive. It's going to go to levels and it's going to do it quickly, making you believe that all is good and all is well. And it's a corrective rally, a counter trend corrective rally, followed by a destructive C wave. Now, back to what Elliot is and is not. Elliot wave, according to RN Elliot himself, what the basis is, is what it shows us is human emotional reactions is basically what is behind. And we have what we call personalities at each of these waves. So, and what, no matter what the direction is, <clears throat> you can fit the emotional behavior into it. Now, if we consider that there are basically two emotions present at all times in a market that primarily just free uh, fear and greed and fear of we're going to lose and greed that we're not going to get enough. And that produces a lot of the moves and the reactions off of a lot of the data we're receiving now and just a lot of the moves that are happening. So the Elliott Wave principle, the Elliott Wave theory, continues to function on that basis. Now, here's what it doesn't. It doesn't take fundamentals into consideration. It doesn't take economic news into consideration as to what the count will be. But here's what it does take into consideration, how people are going to respond to it, how traders respond to that news. What do they do from that news? Now, that can cause a bullish or a bearish reaction. But Elliott Wave itself cannot, I can't sit and declare, oh, you know, this number is all this and then, you know, we're just going to, we're going to die. But I can tie it to a particular count. Again, going back to here. This was just kind of getting too hairy because I have to tell you, in the S&P, it, it did not make a new high. The NASDAQ for sure did not make a new high. The NASDAQ was still trying to come up and off of its dot-com bust. Now, that was the NASDAQ crash, equivalent to what 1929 was to the equity markets, the balance of the equity markets and the Dow Jones and the S&P back in the previous century. We come up into the 21st century and the NASDAQ has its very own crash. Now, yes, it took down a lot of the other markets. They all participated. But the NASDAQ itself, from high to low, was 87% of its value, which is gigantic. So when you're looking at that versus what all this was going on, the 2009 low did not move the overall market because here, this is the dot-com bust. 
Then we have this B wave in the equity markets. They were ignoring what was happening over there in, in all of the uh, tech stocks. Go up all by themselves, slam dunk. Here they made a new low over in the NASDAQ. Quickly show you, this is the dot-com bust. This is the economic collapse. Look at the difference. So when we're trying to compare things one-to-one -one against each other in our markets, even on a long-term basis, it doesn't work. And I'll show you more about that in just a second. So back to, let's stick with the SPX. So we're into this level here. And now we can see cycle degree, corrective phase, all done. We hit those lows, by the way, 668. And that was in 2009. We're now trading at 4050. We got up to 4808 in January of 2022. So in 22 years, actually in 13 years, the market rallied 4,200 points. There are a lot of different reasons as to why. We had this, the government and the Fed needed to bail out a lot of corporations. And they had to bail them out to keep the people working. If the people were really going to be kind of unemployed, this would have turned into a serious depression. How do they do that? They inject capital. They fund the recovery, basically. And so that's what happened. Bing, we came right out of it. Now, being that it started a cycle wave five, now we're back to figuring out, okay, what's inside a cycle five? It's going to be five waves of primary degree, labeled one, two, three, four, five. You can't see it because it's too squishy up there. So we get the five waves up. Now we can start breaking this down. What was inside of that? Five waves of intermediate degree. But again, because this is a monthly maximum chart, everything gets squished in together. <clears throat> What's going to be inside this primary third wave? Five waves of intermediate degree. Much easier for me to label because of the rallies and what took place. So again, when we're studying Elliott, again, I'm just quick rules here. Within Elliott, there are basically, I think, about five different rules. And one of the rules, wave two cannot exceed the starting point or the end point of wave one. So that's a rule. If it does, guess what? It's not correcting wave one. And so it's, it's not a wave two. It's something else. And another rule, wave four cannot overlap the price territory of wave one. In this case, there's not a chance it was going to do that because look at how the depth. But when we're up here, and most recently, this past week, on a very small degree, we did. And it has to be counted as acceptable. And I'll tell you how that works in with Elliot on his own notes. I'm one of the very fortunate people that I do have. I got a hold of um, R.N. Elliott's original notes. And they, they were his typed on a typewriter, but I have photocopies of them. And they're spectacular. They gave such insight as to what Elliott was thinking and what he was really writing about. Back to the count. So we continue to build our picture that within this cycle wave five, we're going to have five waves of primary degree. Within each one of those, waves one, three, and five, they're going to break down into their own five waves. If we took take a look at that magnificent third wave, it's because Elliot let us know third waves are most often the longest and the strongest out of a five-wave sequence or waves one, three, and five. But the rule states that wave three is most often the longest and the strongest out of one, three, and five. But what it cannot be, which would break a rule, it cannot be the shortest wave out of one, three, and five. 
does not always have to be the longest. It just cannot be the shortest. So often we'll see wave one, and then wave two, wave three, and then a wave four, and then it's wave five that'll extend and build on itself. We've also seen there are times where wave one actually within the sequence extends the most, and that wave three might become in second, and wave five would then be the shortest. So the rule is that wave three can never be the shortest. And if you're trying to label and you're coming up against that, then you need to take a step back, allow the market to tell you first, because if you're kind of stymie going like, well, I have no idea what it is, then you've got to let the market work out work out that detail for you. And be, to be quite frank with you, it always does. Eventually, the picture clears up and you will understand it. And I'm going to go into that very quickly as I continue here with the SPX. So counting up, we've got to get to a cycle wave high. We got five waves of primary degree. Those are the labeled in the green. The yellow are inter intermediate degrees. And then up here, we get into the different colors and that's a very short term. We have a minor degree, a minute degree and a sub minute degree that I also use. So getting back in, I'm gonna go back down to a weekly. Now we're down to the weekly chart. And here's that primary three, here's that primary four. That was COVID. That was the quickest decline and as destructive as you can imagine. Now here, most of us were around, were in the markets at that time. And this was straight, no hands down, panic. And in three weeks, the market lost 38 to 40% of its value. That's how destructive that primary fourth wave was. Here again, though, how did we get this next rally just to go when we had such destructive things happen to our economy from COVID? We, the country was shut down. We couldn't leave our homes. How were we going to get things? Sir, and many, many, many people. Employment shot to what, 10, 12%? I, I can't remember the exact levels, but it got up there pretty high. So again, what we're looking at is that we needed to be bailed out. So once again, quantitative easing, stimulus money started to get printed and injected into the economic, into our monetary system via stimulus to every single person. We all got stimulus check. Not one, not two, but I think up to three or more. That is what saved our economy, gave it the injection it needed, because we also are the Fed and the government gave stimulus money to corporations that needed it and low interest loans that could be paid back or be forgiven so that people could keep their employees and pay them. So many, many, many things helped us to recover up to this level. But the one thing that lags and keeps keeps concern here is the amount of money that was injected into the monetary system. In and of itself, folks, we're talking eight to thirteen trillion dollars on top of our own U.S. budget, which is like still piling on debt because it costs money to operate the government each and every month, each and every year. Hence, we're having the discussion in Washington now. We need to raise the debt ceiling again, and we're already sitting at thirty-one point four trillion dollars. That's a lot, but if we don't the government will not be able to operate. And many of the services that the government provides to its citizens will be cut back or cut out. It would not present a very pretty situation. So when we get into these arguments and you're wondering why would the market react to that? It's like, think about it. If they start cutting services, paying for them, 
first thing is going to go. We don't we don't fix the bridges. We don't fix the roads. We don't repair our infrastructure. We don't repair the electric grid, which suffered a lot of hurt and harm during the recent storms that are now roiling across the country. All of that will stop because it's been our federal government. It's another story. We're not going to talk politics, but here you go. This is what goes into, how do you want to count this? How do you want to do this? So here we are. We finished this super cycle wave three. Now we're going to begin. Now, if we just use straight Fibonacci, right? It took 90 years to get up to here from that low in 1932. This high is 2022. Took 90 years to get up there. How long do we think that a, a cycle, a super cycle wave four should take to unfold? Well, even if we just do basic, basic, you're looking at 10 to 12 years. Now, because, in my opinion, because we now have all quantitative stocks, and not stocks, that all our markets are quantitative. Everything is quantitatively traded. So what that means is everything is algorithmic. Everything is computers. And that's what's in action and roaming and scanning and trading in every asset class you can think of every single day, all day. There are algorithms that run, and they're much quicker and they're much smarter and faster with their eye than, than I am with mine, and I'm thinking yours with, with yours as well. So what we got going on now is a situation where since this time, so I think building all the way up here, now I'm going to add to what's going on because we really do have a lot more correction to go. We really have not seen the end of inflation. Although they're declaring it and they're just trying to do things in a very bizarre way because we don't have true evidence. If we go and we look at the, the numbers that, that we're getting, the reports that we receive on the CPI and the PPI, I don't want to say that they're flawed, but they're flawed. And the reason that they're flawed is because the models that they use to produce them, in my mind, produce a lot of smoke and mirrors in between. So we don't really get behind that curtain to see what, what really is happening. But here we are, folks. We're consumers. We have cars. We eat. We have mortgages or, or rent to pay each month. We have utilities. These are the things that really are going to affect inflation and take money out of our pocket many, many times money that we can't afford to give over to it because we'll have to give up something. And quite often, it's food. It's rent. It's paying the utilities, right? I got to feed my kids. I can't pay my utilities this month. Utilities, well, we're going to shut you off. It turns into a very ugly situation and inflationary periods are not pleasant. Now, to say that it's over is to bring some relief or some relaxation to people. But I think it's like, tell the truth. Tell the truth about what's really going on because people want to latch on to things. People want to latch on to what they think is hopeful. They don't and it, what's really kind of come around in our country here, and I don't, and I'm going to assume that it's global, is that people tend to not be able to handle names. Now, I'll share with you that I was uh, doing a, a web show, and I happened to comment to the moderator and said, "Why do you, why do you keep presenting a positive or a false narrative?" And the answer came very quickly: because bears bearish doesn't sell airtime. Well, it stopped me cold, stopped me dead in my tracks. I thought to him, and I said, well, you know, you're right. It doesn't. But false hope is not a good thing either. So, but it made me really think about what CNBC's purposes are, what Bloomberg News's purpose, any broadcaster that has ads, that has commercials that they pay 
the television station or the owners of the station to present those ads to revenue. So does CNBC really want to tell you the truth and then have their their ad revenue slip and go down or have their viewership go down and then the people that put the ads on there aren't going to do it because there's not enough exposure? No, they're there to make money. How do we do that? Tell them what they want to hear. So again, I'm building up where we're at now and what Elliot is telling me versus what the market wants to do. Because the one thing that I have found is that ultimately Elliot is going to be telling you the truth. We just need to put our counts together and our numbers correct. So again, what we're, I don't know why that is actually there because it shouldn't, oh, because it's the SPX. I haven't changed it yet. Now I'm going to go over into the S&P future and I'm going to bring this down back to that daily picture. So you begin to see that what we're really working on is just building blocks. One produces the next layer up, produces the next layer up. But now I'm going to start from that biggest level. I go back out to my weekly. I'm going to start back out at this level. And now I have to work it down. So that's basically the thing. all of this talk to explain the, the process. Now we're working from the top down. So if I am looking at that, we got to have a, a super cycle wave for correction. What's going to be inside of that super cycle wave for correction? It's going to be three waves of cycle degree labeled ABC. Okay, so let's now go to that first cycle wave A. What's going to be inside of that? Three waves labeled ABC of primary degree. Bing, bing. Okay, what's going to be in that cycle wave A of intermediate degree? Three waves, excuse me, of primary degree. Three waves labeled ABC of intermediate degree. So what's what do we know from here? In a corrective phase, all degrees of the count operate in the same direction in the same structures. So in other words, if I'm looking for in the cycle wave, super cycle wave four, an ABC, I'm going to be looking for on the cycle, an ABC, I'm going to be looking for the primary, an ABC, I'm going to be looking for an intermediate ABC. Now I got the intermediate ABC that produced the cycle A. Then I got the cycle B, which continued to adhere. I got the ABC on intermediate degree. I'm now looking for a cycle degree. Okay, another rule that Elliot gave us. All C waves, regardless of direction, all C waves must be five waves. Now, within that five-wave structure, you could have a diagonal C wave, diagonal triangle forming a C wave, or an A wave. You're still going to get the five waves. But instead of one, three, and five being their own five waves, they all break into threes. So these are some of the nuances. So within that, we have wave one will be three, wave two will be three, wave four, three will be three waves, wave four will be three waves, and wave five will be three waves. And guess what? Wave four can overlap wave two, wave one, and wave two should not still should not exceed the starting point of wave one. But wave four can overlap wave one because we're forming a triangle and then and everything kind of gets smaller. Some of just of what we're working on. Okay, so now we're here. We're into that B wave. We're finished with the B wave. We're into a C wave decline. Inside that C wave decline, on a primary degree, are going to be five waves of intermediate degree. So we have intermediate wave one complete, nice clean five down, and that bottomed in October. And 
I got to tell you, I'm hearing now that so there's somebody out there saying that was the bottom. That's the bottom. We're often I'm running in a new a new bull market, and I'm like, well, no, I don't agree with that. But what does it do? It gets a lot of people running. It's a lot of people going like what he said, and so I encourage us all to form our own opinions about where we are with the available stats, with the available news, with the available information. And you can piece together your own picture and have a little bit of understanding of like how all of this works. And I'll stop in a moment and to go over because I want to talk about my pecking order. And so we'll go from there. So what we have here is that we've got intermediate wave one. And originally, for the longest time, this level right here, I had labeled as intermediate wave two, and that we were already in an intermediate third wave beginning. Now, what would be inside that intermediate third wave would be five waves of minor degree. So this was intermediate wave two. This should have five waves of minor degree. And I held that pretty cleanly for as long as I could. I had alternate counts, but my preferred count continued to, to show that we should drop off the cliff and we should start to go down. Well, the market eventually continued to tell me, no, they're not ready. No, they're not going to do it. And I can bring this down again to the four-hour chart, and you're going to see all these periods. And remember what I said before? The market's always trying to hang its hat on. It's always waiting for something. Lately, it's been, you know, because we're trying to figure out where's inflation. We're trying to figure out, is it being, are we winning the battle with inflation? Or are we still losing the battle with inflation? So, et cetera, et cetera. So the market tends to want to wait for the CPI. Then it wants to wait for the PPI. Then it wants to wait for the jobless claims. Then it wants to wait for the employment situation. So it's always going to be something that's going to change someone's opinion or view of what's going on. Now, add to that that we have an expiration every single day in the ES and the SPX options tend to go and gravitate to certain strike prices. These things, it's just a natural occurrence. It just happened. Then we have expirations in all of the individual stocks or components of these indexes every single Friday. Add to that the immense broadening of our marketplace through the use of ETFs. And quite frankly, we have basically three major asset management companies, three big ones, big titans, BlackRock, State Street and Vanguard, massively large firms that control a large, very large percentage of the voting rights of the S&P 500. So we've given through just the way we invest as, as people here in our country. Well, finding people that in, in millennial, Gen Zs, whatever we want to call them, the younger people, that they're not going like, oh, I'm going to do analysis on Apple and AMAT and AMD, and I'm going to figure out what's going on there, and I'm going to put on my positions accordingly. Well, people go, you know, I don't have time to do that. I'm really busy. I'm, I'm busy at my job doing this and doing that. So what I'm going to do is, hey, if I go over to this ETF, I can give them money. They're going to put it in 500 stocks. They're going to put it in 25 stocks, whatever's a member of that ETF. And then I get that I get that creative exposure and let somebody else manage my money. Hence, we now have a glut of asset managers, people that are in control of a lot of other people's monies, and they've got to put it into work. That, in and of itself, puts a lot of pressure on anything we're doing in the market, because there are particular times of each day that they're coming in, either as redemptions, because the movie's money out, or new money coming in. Well, then we have Fed Day. 
going, well, you know, the Fed's going to pivot. The Fed's going to pivot. Oh, really? Okay. And then here, this was when they announced that, yes, they were going to go instead of three quarters of a basis points or 75 basis points, they only hiked it 50. The minute they did that, the Fed's going to pivot. And then we start getting all these stories and all this talk about, well, the Fed in the next meeting, which is, by the way, next Wednesday, they're only going to they're only going to raise it 25 basis points. That's the gig. They're going to start cutting back. This is all inflation's dead. Inflation's under control. Start the narrative. Everyone's going to jump on. Everyone believes. Does do we know with any hundred percent certainty what the boys behind the doors and the women are behind those doors are really going to come out with? When, if you listen to the Fed governors and what they're saying, they're basically telling us, hey, don't get all excited about this rally. Don't do it. We're still fighting inflation. It's still problematic. We still have pockets that are not being controlled. Fed's going to cut only 25 basis points. They're going, to, they're going to raise only 25 basis points. Boom, the narrative gets repeated again. So we are waiting with grand anticipation for that. But what happens in between? Now we got the year-end earnings. We got all these earnings reports to come out. And now the companies are going to report on all this great business they did last year. Now, a lot of those companies announced pre all this earnings report that they had to lay off people. They all came out with statements about why they were doing it, that we hired too fast post-pandemic. Now we got to cut back. We have to be more prepared. We're just, we're, we want to be strong moving into a recession and not presenting ourselves with a very difficult situation. So they're all now saying, yep, the country likely in 2023 will move into a recession. Fed's only going to cut 25%. Fed's have really got a handle on inflation. Inflation's dead. And my statement back is, okay, inflation's dead. What comes next? A period of deflate. If we've inflated the prices, they're going to have to deflate. You know what? Now I'm going to go back to that other chart. I don't need to. The financial collapse of 2008, 2009 was a period of deflation. And that's what happened. Companies close up. People get unemployed. Things get real squirrely. Prices deflate. We've already seen a lot of that here in the NASDAQ. It's Jim, it, it, it truly gets masked because all of this money that's being given over to asset managers ends up and Apple, AMAT, AMD, Amazon, Google, uh, Honeywell, Intel, Metaverse, Microsoft, Netflix, NVIDIA, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You can pick out the top 15 and how they control the balance of the index. I mean, we have stocks like Carvana, Vroom. Hey, these were stocks that hit $350, $400 that are now trading at a dollar. So this deflation, this, this crash is happening, but it kind of gets masked real easily. That's why we always thought it's like everybody wanted to watch the Dow, which is comprised of 30 stocks as a representation of what the health of American corporations and the American economy is. Well, that kind of got expanded. Now we're going to call, well, we're going to look at the SPX. We're going to look at this, the S&P 500 until they change the weighting, until as the S&P needed to be more broad-based, and so they started including Apple, Microsoft, all of these big tech. And when those are in control and those get pushed one direction or another, you're going to see these moves in the S&P, the NASDAQ, the Russell, because now we've all got this intermingling of companies between all of the index. So are, you, are we really getting a fair expression of what's really happening? Or are we getting a fair expression of what's happening within a small collection of companies? So just food for thought. Now, where we are currently, this has been incredible 
But I want you to know, and because the title of my of my presentation is using Elliott Wave and Fibonacci as your guide. And that continues to hold true. And I'll tell you, because I've now gone over and I've, and I've shown you real quick what my long-term count, and I don't have to go back that far and just use a three-year. My long-term count has not changed because I don't see any. All in here is all the hoopla and the promise of lower rates, this and that, lower rates. We got the gist, we got GDP, we got all the stuff. That's all sitting in right there. Does that look like it's the start of a new bull market? No, it's fits and starts and rejections and rallies and rejections. And to say, oh, no, we're, this is it. That was the low. That correction is over. We've corrected 90 years. Well, we're done. We did it all in a year, less than a year. We did it in 10 months. Great. Not true. So my alley account is reflective of what I see is actually happening. I still believe that we are in a primary C wave, which is going to travel lower. My initial estimate for the S&P and the and basis the future would be that primary wave C should pull in and, and conclude somewhere between 3,000 down to maybe 28. But I've got some fairly strong support at 3,000 down to 29.80, and then again down to about 28.50. Now, how do I come up with all of that? The other thing that was introduced by Elliot, by using what came to him from an Italian mathematician many centuries prior, and that was Leonardo Fibonacci. And he came up with a number sequence. Not that difficult, because all we got to do is just do it. Zero, and then what we're doing is we're taking, starting with zero, and then we take the next number and we add them together. So the sequence goes zero, one, one, two, Three, five, eight, 13, 21, 34, 55. And they just, we take the previous and we add them and that just goes. And that sequence goes on for eternity. It just continually, you can build. Then he noticed that there's a relationship between these numbers. You kind of got to get up a little bit. If we take a look at what is three, the number three to the number five, three is 0.618 of five. 5 is 0.618 of 8. 8 is 0.618 of 13. And you can do that all the way up. So you start to develop these relationships between these numbers. Then Elliot started applying them. And it, as he started to look at how a market rallied, how it declined, and how far it got, and what the patterns looked like, and then what happened in between with the waves of these patterns. And then he started to apply Elliott, and he started to apply Fibonacci, and it started to make sense. So he built his system, and he talked about the characteristics between the waves, the personalities of the waves, who really expounded on that idea and those thoughts was Robert Prechter, who most of us do know as writing the Elliott Wave Principle. A.J. Frost and Robert Prechter combined forces long time, 40, 50 years, 50 or more years. And what they brought forward was the work of R.N. Elliott and Hamilton Bull. And then that got put in by A.J. Frost and Robert Prechter. Now, what needs to be constantly in not corrective nature, but being added is the changes that the market is producing and how we trade and how things are calculated and how things happen. What affects that calculus? What affects the market moves? That has changed dramatically in the last several years. We have all kinds of things coming in now, all kinds of things. We have, like I talked about, expirations every day of the, every day of the week. 
and sometimes several on that Friday, right? Right now, most of the indices, right? SPX, ES, and I think the NASDAQ, the, even the, some of the treasuries, not every day, but the treasuries have like two a week. They never had that. So when you've got that, traders will go to the strikes. If you need to adjust, you got to adjust to the strike. So it adds a whole nother level to what we're seeing happen in the market. Trust me, tomorrow's an expiration. It's a weekly expiration. Let's take a look at these stocks and you can tell me. This is easy to do. I'll show you. Well, let's start with Tesla. These are the number of stocks. Check it out. 238,000 contracts of the Jan 160 calls have traded today. Look at the volume in the stock. 226 and a half million shares of Tesla have traded today. That is huge. Go figure out. Go figure out what's the float in Tesla. How many outstanding shares are there? And you're going to see how many times this changes hands. Now, these options will settle tomorrow at 4 o'clock Eastern. That's it. That's to be the price. The price of that index against the, uh, the price of the stock against these options. It all gets settled out into cash. And so money continues to float and everything. If you understand options, when you own a call, it gives you the right to purchase 100 shares of the underlying Tesla on or before this date, January the 27th. So you got one day. Here we have this, by the way, <clears throat> has come down. But the implied volatility for these January options that expire tomorrow is 80%. Yesterday, at the end of the day, it was 120 or something. 120% volatility. Boom, we got a stock that's up 15. Is it up because they're just in love with those earnings? They're in love with the prospects? I <clears throat> would tend to disagree. I'm sure some of it is that, but it all is now being based on where are these options? And these options trade by so many algorithmic firms, all of them, but they have algorithms that are out hunting for what we as option traders call premium. So, and premium is equated to volatility. The higher the volatility, the higher the premium. What people are willing to pay for either a call or a put. Right now, their fear is to the upside. Their fear is that the stock goes up and up and up and up and up. And therefore, we get to go through that. Now, well, yes, you can you can get a sign because the actual settlement is not until Saturday. So that happens. It's like you're going to get your closing price, but you're going to find out if you're going to be exercised or assigned the following day. But then you have to understand that there are rules. This was a question, folks. There are rules that the clearinghouse has already put out, and they change that for how much how much does that option have to be in the money? to be automatically exercised. It's two cents now, two cents. There's our bell. So our market is closed. We're starting the next hour. All right. Thank you again for hanging out with me. And now we're just going to continue here. So we have different, not rules, but different situations that affect our markets every single week. So what happens now? You'll see, look at the volatility is going to start to come down because these expire tomorrow. This volatility will start to go up because next week on February the 3rd, we start all over again. So on Monday, we start all over again as to where we think we want to put this company, this stock next Friday. Go back and see where this started last Monday. The stock is up incredibly on bouncing. Last Friday's expiration, I believe, is around 1.30. This one, 
160. Are they going to go for 190 next week? I don't know, but people are willing to pay two cents for that thought. So add into all this, all the other stuff that kind of goes with an expiration. It's, it's all speculation. It's all this. That may be so, but you've heard likely some people talking about the gamma squeeze. Well, when you're trading options, and let's just take, for example, that I am, I'll switch this around. Let's go. And now we're into this, this option, which is a 160 call, which right now is basically in the money, 27 cents in the money. But people are willing to pay, wait a minute, they're willing to pay $2.74 for an option so that they can buy the stock at $1.60. But wait a minute, why do I need to pay that when I can just go do it for 20 cents over, or 27 cents over, actually 21 cents over? It's just the way the options are priced but due to the volatility. So in essence, now we have, so now you, you buy one of these calls. That entitles you to purchase 100 shares of stock from whoever sold you that option on or before tomorrow. at So hopefully you're going to think that it's going to go above what you paid for and you can sell it without having to go through the exercise. But let's say you're now going to hedge this trade. You're the seller. You're going to hedge this trade. If you're going to try to do a delta neutral position, well, you go over here and the delta is only 52. So I only need to buy 52 shares of stock and they can. Now, what happens if this thing continues to rise? That number is going to change real quick. So as if the stock continues to go up, you're only, as the seller, you're only 50% hedged on your position. The other 50% is going to continue to raise the gamma and tell you how short you're now getting, right? Because you've sold the right to sell somebody to sell, you've sold the right that you're selling somebody 100 shares of stock. You're only covered on half of it. The other half will come and collect from you at some point if it gets exercised. Now, if you do it one-to-one, -one, you're basically covered. But then you have exposure on the other side because there's a whole saying, for you know, a call is a put and a put is a call because it's combined, right? If we look at the delta, that delta is going to equal that delta. We put it together, it equals 100. 49.51 equals 100. So 100 shares of stock split between a call and a put. And when you're selling the put and you're not doing it one-to-one -one with the stock, you're going to be in the same situation. You're only buying 50 shares versus the 100 that you just committed to. All of this comes into play because as these things flip and fly, right? Now let's talk. Tesla came up almost $16 today. And actually it was much higher. So if we just go and just, let's just take 15 off of that. That's 135. We can't even get to those calls. They're way down below all this as to where the stock started. Well, actually it didn't because that includes, we had the, the numbers yesterday. So, but even if we're going to the 152 and a halves, you know, we had all these strikes get plowed through on the way up. When that happens during the market when it's open and the options and the stock are both trading, you'll see this mad dash. They got to adjust their position because if you short that call, you're going to get shorter as it moves up. You need to buy the stock. So what's that do? It puts pressure on the stock. Same thing in the puts. Things happen with the options, and that forces the adjustment in the stock. And as we get close to expiration, they get wilder. So 
we have a lot going on. And does it really reflect back that we're bullish or bearish on the stock? No, it doesn't. Because all of this has nothing to do with being bullish or bearish. It has everything to do with premium. Big algorithmic firms that love to sell premium. But guess what? They hedge fully. Most of these big firms are hedging fully and looking to either get assigned or exercise each and every. They make a ton of money doing that. Okay, so I'm going to get out of there. I'm going to go back over here. We're talking about how are we going to apply Elliott as our guide. I will say, I'm going to come back down to my, well, let's go to the four hours. This count was extremely difficult. I often in my updates, I'll talk about, I'm very satisfied with my count right now. I'm saying I'm very satisfied with my count up to that intermediate wave one of primary wave C going on this very corrective in nature. That doesn't look like it was impulsive. Impulsive looks like that, not like this with these big gaps and all this other junk in here. So this was corrective. I had put it in as a complete ABC and labeled it intermediate wave two until we started to get this. Up until this point, this I wasn't labeling as wave one. Remember C wave, all C must be five. But in the first time, first place, this was over here. This was over here. The C wave and the intermediate two were here. This I counted as wave one of a minor wave one of a new developing intermediate third wave down. Didn't work out that way because this I was labeling as corrective. Didn't work out that way. Then the two and then the, and then so how it is working out still. This is the example I wanted to show you. The internal count here, right? What did I say before? Wave four should not overlap wave one, and it does. But the one thing that Elliot did include, and you have to read pretty deep into, is that when the analyst runs up into a problem and exhausts all other avenues of analysis, then it likely is going to be what I wouldn't expect. And how this counts out is internally, I have minute one, minute two. And then we would think that we could have minute, sub-minute one, sub-minute two, sub-minute three, sub-minute four. Well, first thing, that sub-minute four overlaps this wave one. It doesn't overlap minute wave one because that's this one, does not. But the internal count for wave three, it does. I went back, I debated with myself, I talked to uh, one of my own Elliot mentors, and we both came to the same conclusion that Elliot not necessarily gave us an out, but gave us the ability to realize that within the small, tiny degree, because the balance of the wave is continuing to follow the five-wave sequence. So let me demonstrate. So if I have one, two, this high was three, this ABC clean four, and then it starts to rally up in that fifth wave. And thus far, it has successfully broken above the third, which it should. So we're well on the way to completing a minor C wave, and then in turn, the intermediate wave two. So by just adjusting my count, I wasn't totally comfortable with it, but I did it. And then the market continues to back me up on the decision by following through within the wave pattern now shown. Now, I want to start adding Fibonacci to this to show you how that also can help you guide. So some of the things that Fibonacci, we use Fibonacci on, I don't need to go there. I can go right in here. We're looking at the, the relationships and inside of this wave two, 
what are the relationships between the waves? One is going to be that wave B will be related to wave A in terms of retracement. And then we need to go and then we look at what are the most common retracements for a B wave to an A wave? Well, let me put up those fibs. And they're pretty simple. You go to where the start of a wave A to the end of wave A, then you've got your, your numbers. Most common, 382 to 62. So 38% to 62%. Those are the most common levels. So you got 382, 50, 618. 382 came down, broke it. It's like, okay, that's fine. We're looking at 50, came down, broke it, but it rallied up off of it. Could that have completed it? Yeah, maybe. Came back down, made a new low in between. It's like, well, that fits. ABC, there's our B wave. There was the bottom side limit. Or we really could have looked and thought that this B wave could have come all the way back down to 3502. Why? Because it would be a ABC flat, but it didn't. It stopped here. And now we've marked at the B. And now what we're looking for is a C wave, five wave C wave. So the retracements are done. Now, the other that we can use and that we have in our arsenal are extensions. Extensions are going to help me. How high can this wave go? Because I don't see, I don't have anything there. We determined how low it could go within this wave, right? The retracements are easy because we're comparing it to something we already can see. Now we're trying to give an estimate and the potential and throw some parameters around what this rally could do. Okay, so what are the relationships then? They're going to have to be between the C wave and the A wave. Why? Because they're both operating in the same direction, right? Counter trend, but still in the same direction. A wave's up, C wave's up, and the intervening B wave is the counter trend for that, for this particular sequence. So now we're counting up five waves, but we can go first and go, okay, I have wave A and B. So now I have enough points where I can put in my extensions. And so now I can go back, reference Elliot, reference Trector's book, reference other people that have come before me and laid out a lot of what is most common in a C wave. One of the most common is that a C wave will be 62% of the A wave. Well, we got that number right here, 4207. Well, wait a minute. Wave C should take out the high of wave A. Bingo, it does. It's a viable target. What would be the next? Wave C is equal to 100%. Well, that's up here at 4466. Now, you right off the top of your head might say, well, is that possible? Well, yeah, it's possible. But now I'm going to go out to my daily and remember what this intermediate wave two is correcting is intermediate wave one. What's the rule? Intermediate wave two cannot go past the starting point exceed the starting point of intermediate wave one. Well, there's the starting point of intermediate wave one, 43.29. So this and this basically should not occur. Now I can go back down and I'm going to see. So this is out. This is out. What's still in? Well, we got that 618. We got the 70 and a half. This is an old SPX market makers level. And it is 70.5%. The sweet spot, they call it. I got this from uh, a, a, a trade room that I was uh, visiting, and I thought it was very interesting, so I kind of keep it and use it. But that actually came from the oil trading group, and he got it from a mentor that was in the SPX pit. Now, dealing with this, now we're going to bring it back down. In fact, let's bring it down to the hourly chart. 
because here we are again within our five-way structures up, and I'm looking for a fifth wave, right? And I'm looking for the fifth wave within the minute degree. That's these that are in white or grayish white. So what's the relationship between a fifth wave? It relates to the third wave. Well, here's that third wave. So I'm going to go back to my extensions. I'm going to collect that to there, to there. What do I get? Again, wave five. What's the most common? Actually, 618 of three. Often, right? Let's bear in mind, wave three is most often the longest and the strongest out of waves one, three, and five within an impulse move. Well, that fits. There's wave one. Here's wave three. Wave three certainly was the longest, and it certainly was pretty strong. It was nonstop, just bye, 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 bye. So it all fits. So now I'm looking at this one, still showing that it's pretty strong, but within it, I get to count. I got it could be very, it could be a varied count, but this could be one, two, or I can get one, two, three, four, five, you know, five. And, and then there's a lot of different interpretations that we can get here. One, two, one, two, there's a lot of things. This is one, this is two, one of five, two of five. We're in a three of five. That would suggest that we're going to go above, right? Remember, we got up to here, we can get here. So 4180 is actually, let me go back out to my four hour chart. 4180 is kind of what we could go above. 4330 is where we cannot go. So now that we've got this additional numbers lining up, right, for this wave five, that one, yeah. But then we got 4027, 4130, 4150. That's my zone. Look, we even got overlap here, 50%. And then what we got sitting up at the top, 4201 and 4207, which happens to represent 62% for the whole, whole C wave. 62%. Okay. Everything fits. But now I'm beginning to put more guide to it by putting in the next layer to show me where our five is going to end. So now I've got my zones. 4110, it fits, but it doesn't get it above that 4180, which is eight wave A. 4150, it fits, but doesn't get me above 4180. This does. So while I think this could be the ultimate high, it could it could stop anywhere in here, and then it would be considered a failure. They do happen. Remember, this is corrective. What's going to tip this over is either a missed earnings or the Fed says something that is not going to sit well with them. So we've got till next week. First of all, we've got expiration tomorrow. That should be a swing. And then we have additional earnings again, Monday, Tuesday, and then Wednesday's Fed Day. Thursday is Apple's earnings. We do have some on the 31st of January and, and Monday and Tuesday of next week. And then we have Wednesday, February the 1st, the Fed comes in and tells us what's going on. We also have other monthly numbers that are going to come out next week. So it could be the Fed says one thing, and then it's going to get backed up by some numbers or earnings or whatever. So basically, I continue to think that if we're really going to start to drop, it's going to be nasty. Now, how am I going to add this together? How am I going to let Elliot be my guide and both Elliot and Fibonacci be my guide? For the balance of this up wave, I'm working it out. And now, not only have I drawn it for what I think wave five should look at, I'm now going to add an additional layer. I now can get inside here. It's going to get very crowded, but you open it up and you take a serious look. I can do another because now if I'm going to look for wave three, I'm going to compare it to wave one. I want to see the reality of what my count is telling me. 
If not, then I need to maybe go back and repick my points. 4132 just takes us up where wave three is 100% of wave one. Perfect. That works. We're still, ultimately, we're looking for this upside around 4200, right? So that gets me up to wave three. Then I do a pullback and then I get a fifth wave and maybe I can end up there. So I'm going to take that one out. Oops, let's go. Hell no, no. I'm going to go here, remove it, remove extension two. Whoop, took off the wrong one. So let me there, remove the draw. So that would be for that third wave, if indeed that's what it is. Going back over here to put my other's extensions back up because those are going to be the more important. We're still, that's our upside. How we get there, it depends on the structure. I need a little bit more to base it on because we'll start, you continue to build to guide your move up. And at the same time, use, using that same fibs and here, if this starts to break down from here, what can you put in to say, wow, we're not ever going to get there and we're breaking down. So therefore I have to conclude, <coughs> excuse me, that this intermediate wave two is complete and we're moving down. We start to break. Now, you'll notice that I have additional lines here. Those are moving averages. I use the moving average and I trust the moving averages because often they line up with Fibonacci. Somehow the market lines them up with Fibonacci. So when we start to, if we got up to here, we're not quite getting to that 4180, but I can seriously count a clean five up. And we start to just get, or some news hits the market and it just goes kablooey and just starts to head lower. These are important things to take note of. We start breaking high-level support. We start breaking below the moving averages. And the more important ones to realize, and I got to do this a little bit more, hourly would be the 20, the 50, and the 200. You'll notice how that we had a pretty strong rally today. We ended up almost 200 to the upside. But look at that. That's these are going more vertical. This is not. So while I'll use Fib and the Elliott as my guide, now I'm adding another nice little layer because I'm a day trader. I stopped carrying positions. And my favorite thing to do in the market is scalp. So I've really developed that technique and that style. So I love to scalp. I'm in and out and I'm done. Thank you. And when I make my goal, my daily goal, I say thank you and go and enjoy my day. All our learned habits, all our learned technicals, all our learned techniques and strategies. Also, what I want to add into this, which is a vitally important, don't attempt to trade unless you know what your trading rules are going to be. And what I mean by that is there's three basic rules. First one is know what your trigger, that's your entry. What's your trigger? Well, it broke above the 50, or in this case, this morning, it broke above the 20. And it kept going and it broke above the eight and four trigger. I'm buying it. What's your goal? Well, I think it should at least get up above that high. If that was your goal, fine. You put your order in there. Took you a while, but you got filled. Or maybe you have a goal on the trade. I'm looking to make $300 on this trade. You work out that number, you put your stop, your exit in, or you know where your exit is. That's part two. That's your second rule. Your third rule, which by the way, is most likely going to be the most important rule that you can put into place is where are you going to put your stop if the trade becomes invalid? That one's important. And you know why? Because that's the one that most traders will walk over and not take. And it makes sense if you just take a look at trading psychology or just psychology or just how we are structured as human beings. 
And I think it's it carries an equal weighting, whether you're a man or a woman. I think we all suffer from the same deal. We don't like being wrong. And if we're wrong about the count or wrong about what we thought the market's going to do today or wrong about the trade, we don't like to admit it. So we're tending going to let a stop go without us getting out because, hey, it's going to come back. It's going to come back. Have you heard yourself say that? And then it drops another few points. And instead of deeming down $200 or $300, you're down $500. Now you're down $1,000. Now you're down $1,700. Now you're down $2,500. It can pile on real quick, particularly when you are trading in the futures market. They turn, they run, they turn, they drop very quickly. Why? Because there's an increase in volatility. Why? Because there's an increase in how algorithms are trading the component company. There's news. There's earnings. There's all kinds of things that now affect the price of an index. So to believe that it's going to come back is hope. We do need hope to live. I'll give you that. But my goal, folks, is to come back and trade every day. I really don't want to blow up my account one day because I was stubborn, because I didn't want to get out, because I thought it would be easier to do something different. It just doesn't work that way. It doesn't have to be that way. Now, think about this. If you have a good, strong mindset, your stop is in where your trade becomes invalidated. There's no mention of anything about being wrong. So it depends on how you just tell yourself. It depends on how you deal with your own mental internal demons. So mindset becomes vitally important to your trading. And when I'm teaching mindset to folks, I, I really tell them straight out, what we're doing with the mindset is trying to set a barrier around, and I focus and I draw a circle around my head, right? Because where's the mindset sit? Inside our minds. And what I'm doing out there, when I put that parameter around my head, I am trying to shut out what I call noise. So when you're trading, particularly when you're day trading, I don't need to know who's buying what, why they're buying, what they're buying, how they're buying, where they're buying. I don't need to know any of that. What I do need to know is to follow the price action on my instrument that I am choosing to trade, whether it's going to be the S&P, whether it's going to be the NASDAQ, whether it's going to be the Dow, whether it's going to be an options market, whether it's going to be the uh, IWM or the Russell 2000. I don't care. They all operate under the same premise. And when you're looking at the futures, there's too much input that can come in. Do you care why they're buying or selling? Well, some people say, yeah, then can I know? Then I'm going to know whether I want to buy or sell. No, work with three rules. Have your trigger. Know if that trigger gets, if you get hit on that trigger, you're going to want to react. Do you care what they're doing behind it? You just worked it out. Take the trade because you got part two. Part two is what's my goal on the trade? If you determine it instead of letting the market determine it, you might find it, you might have a little bit more success. You've now got your trigger. Where will you get in? Now you got your, your goal of the trade. And let me tell you how the goal can change. I'm a day trader. I love to do wash, rinse, repeat. We all know what that means. Wash, rinse, repeat. If I'm making it and my system works, I'm going to wash, rinse, repeat. I'm going to do it over and over and over again. As a scalper, I can scalp three, four, five, six, seven times within five minutes of a move. And those opening moves, you can scalp a lot. Now, for example, and I'm not bragging, so please don't misunderstand me. This morning in the trade room, in my trade room, I'm a scalper, so I went to work. The moves were quite clean and quite nice this morning. Now, again, my rules are going to be different than your rules, but I do have money rules and everything else. And I just wash, rinse, repeat. And the next thing I know, I'm up $1,500, all before the first half hour. Now, that doesn't happen every day, so don't get me wrong. But today, I'm like, okay, great. That was a great day. I think I'll stop. 
Why do I need to walk away and think, oh, you know, maybe I need to make a little more? We want to be here tomorrow. I'm very happy with what I made today. Let me put that in the bank and let me come back tomorrow. Now I've got another day, another goal, and let me see if we can make that. The goal as a day trader, the goal as a trader is to live to trade another day. Today is not the last trading day. So again, back to the mindset. If we're going to cut out the noise that we might hear externally by listening to CNBC and listening to Bloomberg News and reading the news and reading the tape, et cetera, et cetera, boy, they're going to toss up a lot of stuff. Why so-and-so is doing this? Oh, this is the latest one I'd love to see in the news. If you invested $100 in such and such a stock 20 years ago, and I'm looking into myself going like, if I had done that, I wouldn't need to be sitting here. Now, would I? So it's noise. It derails you. It, detra it de detracts you from, it takes your, your attention away from what you need to be watching. And that's the price action. The market will tell you cleanly. And on top of it, we've got thousands of algorithms operating all at the same time. We have thousands of day traders across the world that come in to trade our markets each and every day. They all have different ideas. They all have stimulus that'll punch into go buy it or go sell it. So things can move and they can move fast. Then we have the opening rounds from all of the asset managers, all of these big funds. They're programmed, they're algorithmically controlled, and they're going to be doing it a little bit differently. We might buy a five lot because we're looking to sell a 10 now. They've got five fifty million to buy. And they're going to break it up at certain points during the day. And then they're collectively putting it together, going like, here's your view app, your value weighted average price. Could drive us crazy because it's like, what are these buyers showing up now for? Look, we've been going down. Here they come again. It's all a timing factor, but it's the new way things are trading now. So we have to put this into our minds. But again, we don't need to start to factor that in in terms of noise. We need to accept that that's the way the market trades. That's what happens. When you accept it, it allows you to bring in, well, first of all, awareness that this is what is happening. If we accept it, we're not going to get upset when they change their mind or do something different. We're already accepting this is the way it is. Now you're moved into a place that I would call agency, and that's where you get to actually do your work where you can change bad habits, where you can change things. I was like, I don't need to know. If I follow the price action in the S&P, every single stock within the S&P, as it ticks higher and lower, this, this index gets recalculated and it spits out a new price. This is the value right now. Changes in the next second. This is the value now. This is the value now. It's all a product of how it's constructed. Why do I need to know why they're buying? I can see it. Know what your trigger is. Trade technically. Don't get hung up on being stuck in that. Now, using these tools that I've just shown, shown you, if you're having your count in on hourly chart and you've got an idea, well, that was the four, so I'm looking for five up. Now I can start coming down to a five-minute chart. There's my four. I'm looking for five up. I'm going to open that up. So we've, we've got an idea of what we're looking for today. But here we got, we finished there's a one, a two, a three, a four, a five. I don't know if this was one. I don't know if it's wave three. I'm not sure. But I do know it was a completion of a five. Bing, bing, bing. Three wave correction. We got it. It held. And then they started building on it. There's another one. There's another two. One, two, three, four, five. There's another three. Here's another four. I'm on a five minute chart. That's all I need to know. Do I need to know what they're buying, what they're selling, or why? No, I can count it. This is your guide. 
you're now letting a five-minute chart guide your trades. This was difficult, right? Coming in and like, whoa, look at all that up and down, up and down. You get to make a choice. It's a little bit too choppy and nobody's really unsure what they're going to do. I'm just going to hang out. I'm not going to trade. We get to make choices. If you can keep your mindset together and not care about the who, what, when, where, or why, you're using this as a guide. And it's basically telling you, eh, you might not want to try. Because Rick, look at inside there. We have, uh, I got to see if I can this up a little. We have the eight and the four. Now they're guiding this trade higher, but look what's happening down and up, down and up, down and up, through it, above it, through it, above it. And if I'm using either one or the combination of the two as a trigger point to buy or sell, you're in and out, in and out, in and out, in and out, in and out way too much. You stand aside. Your mindset's strong enough. Now you can see it. Stand aside. I don't need to know beyond that. Let the market decide. It's going to tell me. If you use what Mine, it's I, I kind of put this up and I keep it over there so I can see it as I'm trading because I have tick, tick ND, which is that's the broader market, that's the NASDAQ, and there's the Russell. This will show you how many issues are being bought or sold at any given moment within the trading day. And the bigger the number, right, here's the NASDAQ, it can't go above 100. There's only 100 stocks in there. The broader market is upwards of, I think, Again, we're talking 2,000 or 2,500. The Russell is 2,000. So if you see the Russell coming in with 1,000 on a buy side or a sell side, that's a big order. It's going to move the indexes. And on top of it, we have, if we take a look at the weighting, because everything's cap, cap weighted, all these indexes, and Apple, Microsoft, Alphabet, or Google, Metaverse, they sit in the top of all of these indexes simply because of their weighting, their capitalization. And so when you're looking at a big rally, you start to go down your list and you might think, hmm, Microsoft, look at that glorious run. Why? I'll tell you why. When their earnings came out, did anybody notice? They ran it to 252. There's somebody sitting out there with, with that strike price, 252.50. Let's just take a hint. And again, you're going to know this without having to worry about it or look. You're just going to make up your mind. Oop, we want that. We want this one. Value open. Ding, 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 ding. 52 and a half. There's only 10,000. I tell you, it'll go. Stock's only at 47. 52. Where are they? 47 and a half. 48. They're starting to build. This came alive. It's three bucks, four bucks out of the money. 24 bit at 29. They're worthless. Right now, they're worthless. They expire tomorrow, but today they're worthless. 10,000, they're perking, they're looking. But because I saw right there the 255s, that's kind of what they're going to go for. So that helps me as well, but that's just because I'm an expert. You don't necessarily need to do that to trade. Now I want to just share with you a very important point that is so strong that you have to keep your mindset to. We have a tendency that the noise that will come is coming from between our own ears. It's coming from us. And it can be very destructive. And again, going back to why we tend to let stops, not we don't want to take the stop. We let it go. We walk over it. And then we have hope. And then it doesn't work out and we end up taking a bigger loss. What's the normal reaction that comes next? You stupid jerk, you fool, you idiot. What did you do? You did this wrong. The negative beratement, belittling just really roars. And now you're being more destructive. Now your mindset is kablooey gone. Often what can come out of that? Oh, let's go revenge trade. I'll show you market. 
I'll sell it. You all want to sell it? I'll sell it. Now I'm going to sell not just one contract. Let's give you five. And that's the exact moment they went, oh, gee, thanks, because we're going to turn around and go back up, which was your original plan to begin with. Now you're getting whipped in both directions. Revenge trading, never, never, ever the answer. And folks, I'm speaking from experience. I have 43 years of experience, but you think that just because you have that, that you're going to be free from all of your own internal demons? No, they will always be there. They will always sit on your shoulder if you let them and just kind of yell into your ear like, oh, you better jump. You better jump. You're not getting it. You're going to get the market's going to run. You better get in there. You better get in there. Come on. Come on. Go by. Come on. Get long. And then you finally do it. And that's right at the point they turn and bring it back down. Who is it? Is it you or is it that same voice that say, oh, man, come on. Now you're too late. Oh, look, look. Now you're a loser. you big loser. On and on and on. It's usually the same voice coming from within. But there are ways that we can become acceptable. When we work through these things and we can determine that I, I, I'm aware of this voice that is complaining, that is rattling, that is negative, that is trying to just derail me. When you make that awareness, please understand that you get to make a choice. Am I going to listen or am I going to react in anger? If you react in anger, normally that voice has won. But if we can learn to calmly say, you know, I really appreciate that you're there. I really appreciate that you're trying to protect me. I really appreciate that you're looking out for my best interest here. I got that, but I got this one. And then you move on. You take it into agency. Without the emotion, you're likely not going to let that thing walk over your stop. Because when we do that, and then we turn our attitude into, it'll come back. It's going to come back. Markets always do. They come back. Come on. The buyers have been here all day. They're going to come in. Meanwhile, you're working an account that you can't handle three or four or $5,000 hit. And maybe that market is going to go down and it will come back. But in the process, it goes down, you lose 5,000 and it turns and does exactly what you wanted. Now, honoring your stop is nothing more than just picking a point where the trade you're doing becomes invalidated. There is no judgment there. Change and reframe how you want to look at things. When you can come back and say, it's invalidated, it's not going to work right now, it comes easier to take the stop. Because why? Because it keeps your mindset in place. Now you're able to look and go like, hmm, okay, I see you're going to sell this for a little bit. Maybe I'll jump on the sell side. <laughs> Excuse me. I'll jump on the sell side and I will make up some of this money back. So. But it's important to keep your mindset intact because oftentimes, folks, I've honored stop because I'm just like, well, I got to focus. I got to see what the market's really doing. I don't want to lose this this much money. So I get out and I'm going to look. And oftentimes it's doing the same trade again, but this time it is going to work. It does follow through. It does move up. So A, I was early. Or if I really looked at, oh, you know, that signal, it didn't go up and come back and hold the signal. So, man, I got in a little bit too early. So, again, you're just looking at what you did, but now you're looking at it calmly. You're looking at it without judgment. You're looking at it without criticizing yourself. Now you can make progress. So you want to be a trader? Get rid of the noise. Get rid of what swirls around in our heads. And trust me, I want to be so honest with you right now and tell you, 
43 years experience in varied markets on several exchanges around the globe. I was an options market maker. The valuable lessons that you learn along the way and that you can transform into a correct mindset will benefit you today because the canvas has changed. The trading canvas has changed and it is continuing to change as clearing firms, as exchanges, try to pick up models that's going to earn them more money. Clearing firms, we need to make more money. Traders, we need to have more traders. We need to have more trades. Everything kind of works all into the same thing. More. I need more. I want more. All I need to do is go grab my piece of this pie each day, calmly, focused, with methodology, strategy. And that strategy includes a trigger, a target, and where the trade becomes invalid. Remember those three rules, and they're your trading rule. My trading rules are going to be different. You have to work out within your own, how do I manage the risk of my trade? And that goes along with how much are you trading with? How many contracts do you want to put on? What is the risk on this product? Like the S&P, $12.50 a tick, a tick, or ticks to the point. How long does it take the S&P to, to go flipping around a point? about 10 seconds or less when it gets going, the NASDAQ. It's $5 a tick, four ticks to $20, for $1.20. The NASDAQ moves and in, in rounds up 10, 12, 15 points in one big foul swoop. You're on the wrong side. Yeah, it's just an algorithm doing its job. It could stop. It could turn. It could do a lot of things. Follow the price action. Learn the price action. See what times of day these algorithms come in and they operate. Learn what maybe what their habits are. They're all run by people and we all have habits. Use your mindset to your advantage and then add to it. Again, I want to show you on because I have a two-minute chart and a five-minute chart. Attached to this is a scalper. That's a scalp alert. And these are just channel lines, trend lines, and they're 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 fibs in here. But this kind of gets put together that when this market comes down and drops below the four and then drops below the eight and then holds it, you get that signal. I don't like the placement because I think it should be here or even here, but still, then it holds. Now, what am I going to let guide this trade? I'm going to follow the four and the eight, and it guides it all the way down. I'm not getting a buy signal. It's coming up and testing it, coming up and testing it, but I'm not getting a buy signal. So it helps you on a two-minute chart to hold your trade, build new habits, build new indicators. They're not new indicators, they're moving averages, but learn what that moving average does. Study it, look at it. A lot of people use a 20 and a nine. Many people use uh, an SMA or an EMA, but they're using a 50 and a hundred. And when the when the 50 is above the 100, it's usually within a buy mode. When the 50 drops below the 100, it's usually changing it around and making it a sell. These are things. Learn the habits. Learn what they do. Then be, you don't need to clutter your chart up to where you can't see the price action. That would be a disaster. Some people use a footprint chart. That helps them to see what the volume is going to get stuck and whether buyers are being trapped above or sellers are being trapped below. Those produce tradable trades. But again, you have to use them. You have to learn the technique. You got to learn what it does. A lot of people are out there searching for the brass ring, searching for the magic touch, searching for something that's going to make them 
$100,000 by next Friday. That does not exist. What does exist is taking your time, having some patience, and just doing your work. I allow my big picture. Again, I'm going to show you how I use Elliot as my guide. I have each and every day, by the way, I do make updates each and every day on YouTube. It's on the Traders Helping Traders channel and also Traders Helping Traders. And then look for my name, Michael Filigera. You will, because there's somebody else that's using Traders Helping Traders, even though we own it, somebody else is using it. You will get my updates, which are called the Elliott Wave update for the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ 100. I make them every day, Monday through Thursday, and then I pick up again on Sunday. So no need to make one Friday afternoon when we have two days and I got to see what Globex is going to do before I want to decide how to present things for the week. But I make them every day. I update my, my labeling when necessary. I talk about the market. I talk about what figures are coming out. I talk about a lot of things because I need people like me to build a picture for what, what they may or may not be expecting for that next day. Now, I'm working off of the hourly chart, but I can take this like I just did and bring it down to my five minute. And I'm not going to be able to do it there because that one, I can't change that. And I showed you coming down here. And now I can open this up. Now I've got all of today, but I know that's a four. So what am I expecting? I'm expecting five waves up. I can start counting. And when I get to a point that I'm going to be looking right here, this is this was yesterday. That was Thursday. I mean, Wednesday. And we're coming in overnight, right? Thursday. Here's our opening. I'm thinking, wow, we got to do a four. We got to do something here. Bing, bing, bing. Oh, how clean can that be? Similar to this four. And where did that one come in? Off of this high. What am I looking for? A four. What's it going to look like? A, B, C. Wow, look at how clean that was. But when this coming down, oh boy, you got comments that people say, oh, you might have waited to make that call because I was calling for higher prices. But I said it likely will fall in a fourth wave first. Came down. By the way, that did hit Fibonacci support. Clean, clean, clean. What did it do right off of it? Rally, 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 rally. Where did we end up yesterday by our close? I think it was right there. Yep. Yesterday, 1 p.m. Bottom to 39.63. We ran up to 40.39, almost 40.40. Wow, you figure out the math on that one. So if we got one, two, three, ABC, four, it gets a little choppy and a little bit screwy, but we continue to look for five up, followed by three down. As long as we get that, they're going to rally until we reach the top. And we've already started to realize that the top should be here, here, or here. And actually, we now know it can likely go up to here because we're still always going to be looking for it to come up and to break. Oh, I got to go out even further. Sorry about that. We're looking for it to come out and break 4180. And then wave C will fulfill its destiny by creating a new high above wave A. And then we have our lines and we have our, we have our areas. Cannot come up to there. If it does, I tell you what to look for. I tell you what is going on. I do include all of that. So I hope I'm I hope I've made clear how we use Elliott and how I use Fibonacci to guide. And I even bring it all the way down to a day trading screen. And then I add a few other things internally to help me on my these smaller trades. But these are great moves, folks. They are really great moves. You want to be participating in most of them. Sometimes not as easy, but when we get 
our moves in the morning, they're they're great. They look good. I can't go back far enough on those charts, but they're great moves. And again, let's just go into today. Here we are. We come down, dun, 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 and then what do we do? We find our bottom, and then we just start to rally again. It just, it it does work. It does work. If you do it correctly, it does work. Here, I remember thinking, okay, maybe we got one more down. We can come down below that. But it stopped, so it turns into basically one, two, and then we're off. This was diagonal, but it was still corrective. We can pick up the rally again. Then it got sloppy, but still with an upward bias. And then right at the end of the day, push. So you can use Elliott to guide you. You can use Fibonacci to guide you. You can use the moving averages that when you're intraday trading to guide your trades. Remember? Guide, guide. I was guiding the short. I needed to break the eight to show me that it's going to push and go higher. And right above it is the 20. So it, it, it had enough reason to continue just to go down. Both of these turned lower. That's giving you more credibility that the downside should continue. And we're only looking. This is after the market. But still, same same strategy, same methodology. All right. That's me talking <laughs> for a very long time. I want to thank you all for hanging out with me, for listening. And now just open it up very briefly. I could probably take one or two questions, but I want to thank you first for doing it. And I want to thank you, David, for giving me the two hours. It's been a real treat on my side because I get to really expand on what I'm talking about. So again, thank you, everybody. Um, you can reach me, and I'm, I love questions. I like doing that. First of all, if you find me on YouTube, leave me a comment. So um, I am open. You're very welcome. Thank you. There. Thank you, Dave, for putting it on. LogicalSickness.com, TradersHelpingTraders.com. But I'm going to put in my email address that will come directly to me without having to be forwarded through any system. That one. So the first two, you're going to find me on YouTube. TradersHelpingTraders.com, you'll find me on YouTube. And so thank you, David, for putting that bit in as, as well. But if you email me, Michael at MGF1 Partners, and that's the name of my company, .com, that'll come directly to me. I answer questions. I answer people. If they, I may not be as quick as 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 I'd like to be, but I will answer you. David, thank you again. This has been a pleasure. I have enjoyed myself. I am only hoping that everybody else has as well. So I'm going to turn it back over to you, David. Thanks.